Truth Espresso, Episode 78. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, this is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso. Welcome. I hope that you're going to enjoy the holiday season, uh, especially Christmas, as this is going to be the Christmas episode here on Truth Espresso. So get your thinking caps ready and enjoy a deep dive into Christmas. And now on this episode, dealing with the topic of Christmas, I'm not going to read the Christmas story. I'm not going to talk specifically about Mary and Joseph and the manger scene. No, what I want to get into with this episode of Truth Espresso is the Christmas promise of Isaiah 9:6. There might be some Christmas verses that might come to your mind from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, related to the Christmas season. And I would hope that Isaiah 9-6 comes to your mind. Now, if you don't recall what Isaiah 9-6 is off the top of your mind, I hope to ingrain this verse firmly into your brain as we go through this episode. I hope that you will take a new liking and a new appreciation to this verse. And now, as we get into Christmas, when this episode airs, it will only be a few days before Christmas Day, when many of us might be opening some gifts in the morning and saying lots of thank yous and saying lots of, oh, you shouldn't have. You really, really shouldn't have. No, (laughs) But one of the common traditions by Christians and even non-Christians alike when celebrating Christmas is opening presents. And now I also recognize that there are a lot of Christians who don't celebrate Christmas and believe that it's a pagan holiday that should be shunned. And I respect that. And I also respect that those of us who do gift exchanges, we try to keep the identity of those gifts a secret. We might get them a month in advance if you're one of those earlier shoppers, maybe a few months in advance, or maybe you're running to the store on Christmas Eve and then hoping that what you are trying to get is still there on the shelves and then you you get it home, but what do you do? You put it in wrapping paper. And the idea is that the gift, although it is visible right there, it is concealed by some kind of fancy decorative wrapping paper to be revealed in full only on the day that it is to be opened. And so this parallel, I would like to explain that we want to unwrap the Christmas promise of Isaiah 9-6. Isaiah announced a gift for the first Christmas, as I will contend, and told us what it was. Oh, about 700 years before this gift was fully revealed. And so, Isaiah, in prophecy, in Isaiah 9-6, prepared a gift from God for Israel. 
and it was wrapped up in Yahweh God in the second person of the Trinity, taking on a full human nature, being one person with the divine nature of God and a full human nature, and dwelt among us to be our substitute, to live among us, to fulfill the law, as Galatians 4, 4-5 says and ultimately to die and to pay for the sins of those who would be joined to him and reign with him forever. And, of course, to be resurrected, as I pointed out in an earlier episode of Truth Espresso, back in Easter, about the importance of the resurrection, why the resurrection is as important as the death of Jesus Christ. And so now let's get into our verse at hand, our Christmas promise verse of Isaiah 9-6. And Isaiah 9-6 says, quote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So, let's take this gift and let's unwrap this gift together, shall we? Let's take a deep dive and see what lay inside and hopefully to encourage our faith a little bit as we see how this verse really is a messianic verse and how it really does talk about our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is one of those controversial verses that particularly, you know, Jews who are not also believers in Jesus, Christians, or even atheists that don't want to understand that this was a genuine prophecy and that it was about Jesus and that Jesus is who he said he was and who he's attested to by the early writers in church history. So let's take this verse apart. Let's unwrap it together. Let's go phrase by phrase. So, the first phrase of this verse, unto us a child is born. Obviously, there is nothing really super special or unique about those words in particular. But in the context in Isaiah, what it's talking about here, it must be a special child, a king or a deliverer, especially as we look at the language that follows, that describes this child. This is an announcement, a herald of a royal birth, and unto us would grant the idea that this is indeed for our benefit, for the benefit of Israel. Unto us a child is born, not just that a child somewhere out there is born, but unto us. The birth of this one special child has significance for the entirety of the nation of Israel. Now, there are some Jews that insist that this is not really a prophecy. It is a statement about what King Hezekiah would do. It is a declaration that although the enemies of God, Sennacherib, were were plotting against Israel, that King Hezekiah, who would become king soon following King Ahaz, would be the one who would deliver Israel from their enemies at that time, and that Hezekiah, although not coronated as king at that time, that he was still a youth, that this statement was declaring who was presently there at the time and who was going to be a deliverer at that time, pretty soon. 
Ahaz, as I said, was reigning during this time, and Hezekiah was his son, who was considered a good king by all accounts in Second Kings and Second Chronicles and in Isaiah. In fact, the name Hezekiah means strengthened of Yah or strengthened of God. Now, we will test to see whether Hezekiah matches or lines up with this prophecy. We will see if King Hezekiah lines up with everything in Isaiah 9-6 or even in parallel passages that would seem to have some good evidence that they're both talking about the same person and what this person would do. So sure, King Hezekiah is indeed mentioned in the book of Isaiah quite a bit, and it's all in good terms, at least almost all of it. But we still need to test this prophecy to see if King Hezekiah is the one who is in mind. Unto us a son is given. Now, this is a peculiar designation. Obviously, it's not just talking about some ordinary Joe Schmo here. Because unto us, as I said, for our benefit, is something that is, would be recognized by the entirety of the nation of Israel. And now, a son is given. Although God is the giver of life, the text denotes something special about this son. He is given in a special way. Earlier, Isaiah mentioned something about how a son is given. So now we're going to shift a little bit to look at another verse of Scripture that's actually not that far from Isaiah 9.6. It's in Isaiah, and it's only two chapters back. It's in the same context. This is Isaiah 7.14. And so as we're going to figure out what Isaiah 9.6 is talking about, we also should look at what Isaiah 7.14 is talking about and hash that verse out a little bit because Isaiah 7.14 just so happens to be another one of those Christmas verses to unwrap. Isaiah 7.14, just two chapters earlier from our Isaiah 9.6 says, Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And now, you might be familiar with some of the controversies surrounding this verse, especially with one particular word in this verse. This word is the word virgin. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And the issue is that this word in the Hebrew language speaks to the idea that perhaps maybe it's a little hasty or maybe there's some later traditions that crept up that would translate this word as virgin. Perhaps the word virgin is not an accurate translation of this Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word is the word alma. And those who would deny the virgin birth of Jesus have this one argument that the word Alma, the Hebrew word there, does not mean virgin. It means young woman. Now, of course, we can argue that the word Alma can indicate a virgin by connotation or context because the word Alma speaks to the age of a woman. Now, we could assume that under normal understanding, if someone is this young woman, she hasn't yet attained unto marriage. Definitely, the word does not indicate someone who's taken a vow of virginity. It just refers primarily to 
an age. And now the argument is that if Isaiah meant virgin, he should have used the Hebrew word Betula instead of Alma. But now let's look at that. Would Betula have been a better choice to indicate virgin? Well, strictly lexically speaking, perhaps, but if God intended to use the word Alma there under inspiration, there's a reason for that, and it doesn't have to be to say that this is not a virgin woman. Now, the use of the word Alma in the Hebrew Old Testament is pretty rare. It occurs only seven total times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, there are lots of references to women, and in fact, there are many references to the word Betula in the Old Testament, but Alma occurs only seven times. Now, according to Jews for Jesus, the site JewsForJesus.org has an article there, and I'll post a link to this in the show notes. According to Jews to Jesus, the word Alma itself doesn't denote a virgin. Uh Uh-oh, there goes the virgin birth. Not so fast. The word Alma itself doesn't denote a virgin, but it is never used in those seven usages to specify a woman who is married. So, although the word itself doesn't, by definition, ever clearly specify a woman who is known in the context to be married, it denotes age. And, of course, we know that Mary was young. And we can also see that another argument against the word Betula is that the word Betula does not necessarily mean that the person is a virgin. Although it is most commonly used to refer to a virgin woman, it is not universally the case. It might be someone who is not recognized or scrutinized to be virgin, It might be someone who's perceived to be a virgin or, according to the cultural chronology, would be detected as a virgin, but it's not necessary. And it, it doesn't indicate age. So, if the sign demanded that the person, the woman be young, Betula doesn't necessarily mean that the, the woman is young. So, there's good reason to use the word Alma here. But let's look at Joel 1.8. This is an occurrence of the word Betula where it could indicate someone who's not a virgin. Joel 1.8 says, Lament like a virgin, Betula, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. So this is a woman who has a husband, and it's a Betula. Now, Jews might argue, according to the customs, you know, this woman is said to be young, so it's a young Betula, and if she's weeping for the loss of the husband of her youth, this could be the husband during the betrothal period, so she's really mourning for a husband whom she never got to consummate a marriage with. She was betrothed to him, and then he died, and so this young Betula, Betula is mourning, but according to the Jews for Jesus article that I mentioned earlier, the word for husband there is Baal. Now, you know, if you're familiar with what we call Baal, you know, the god, the Canaanite god, it's really the Canaanite god who's kind of like a husband to the earth, and that's the Semitic word Baal means husband, and so this, the Canaanites had a god whom they called the husband. So, this isn't referring to some Baal worshiper or some pagan who's a husband, it just means husband. 
But according to the Jews for Jesus article, Baal is never used of a man during his betrothal period. So there's no way to argue for certainty that this was a betrothal period. It's not mentioned and it's not in the connotation either. It's an argument completely from silence. And so therefore it leaves perfectly open the idea that Betula here does not necessarily always mean a virgin, and so it's perfectly fine for the word Alma to be used in Isaiah 7.14 to clearly indicate a young woman, and if it's a young woman, the assumption is that she has not yet attained marriage and is therefore a virgin. Now, some other evidence of virginity here, the Septuagint, or the LXX, which by tradition there were 70 or 70-so Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Old Testament to Greek during the Greek Empire out of fear of losing their scriptures. They wanted to make sure that those who wouldn't learn to speak Hebrew would still be able to read the scriptures. And so to preserve the traditions, the scriptures, they translated into Greek as well. And so the Septuagint rendering of Isaiah 7.14 translates the word Alma as Parthenos, which clearly in the Greek means virgin. And so if these are Jewish scholars that translated the word Alma to Parthenos or virgin, then that speaks to the idea that they understood that the word meant virgin by connotation. Of course, many could argue that the Septuagint isn't a reliable translation of the Hebrew into Greek, or could have been corrupted over time over transmission, and perhaps the manuscripts of the Septuagint that we have today are not like the original manuscripts of the Septuagint that were written at that time that could have translated the word differently. And of course, yes, there are problems with the Septuagint. Many scholars believe that Isaiah, in particular, is the worst translated book in the Septuagint. And we could see that particularly when we look at Isaiah 9.6. We may be left scratching our head as to how the translators picked the words that they did to render the last part of the verse. When they translated the names, the name given, the four-part name given to the son who would be given, it, it doesn't seem to line up much with the Hebrew. But there's been a historical tradition of even Christians using the Septuagint, and and so the Septuagint has a history of attestation, and it's not a open and shut case that the Septuagint can't be an argument to show that Jews at the time, as they translated the word Alma to Parthenos, they didn't understand at the time that the word meant a virgin by implication. Now, another evidence is the Syriac Peshitta. This is a Syriac translation of the Bible, both Hebrew and Greek, into Syriac uh, from at least the possibly the third century. The Syriac Peshitta is common in, you know, the Assyrian, the churches of the East. Um, a lot of Orthodox, Greek Orthodox churches have high regard for the Syriac Peshitta. Now, the Syriac Peshitta, being a third century witness to the translation of this verse, renders the word as a virgin. So, the Syriac Peshitta is another witness to the idea that Alma is properly understood as virgin. 
And of course, we have Jerome, who is one of two Hebrew scholars in the early church history. A lot of the early church writers and fathers weren't well-versed in Hebrew, but Jerome studied with the Jews for at least a decade, and he learned Hebrew, and, you know, he had his disputes with Augustine over how he would render things in the Latin Vulgate, and he was the Hebrew scholar, and Augustine wasn't. And so Jerome, when translating from the Hebrew to create the Latin Vulgate, rendered Alma as Virgo, or Virgo. Remember the constellation Virgo, the Virgin? Yes, it's the same word in Latin. And so there's another understanding of Alma as Virgo from someone who, who knew Hebrew. And of course, you know, as Christians, we have what we regard as the inspired New Testament scriptures in Matthew one twenty three, which quotes Isaiah 7.14 and also, like the Septuagint, uses the Greek word Parthenos to translate Alma as virgin. And in uh, uh, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho the Jew in number 84, Justin Martyr asks why the prophecy would be called a sign if the son were conceived of ordinary means. And I'll post a link to this dialogue with Trypho number 84, Justin Martyr's dialogue, in the show notes from logoslibrary.org. And so, yes, that could make us think, here's the sign, a young woman, not out of any ordinary situation, conceives and bears a son. Yeah, what's so special about that? How is that a sign? Now, today, there are several Jewish ideas about who fulfilled this prophecy. You know, of course, if it wasn't Jesus, who was it? Is it still yet to be fulfilled, or was it fulfilled by someone in Isaiah's time? There are several ideas. Some, it's, it's a pretty common view among Jews, believe that it was King Hezekiah at the time, who, as I mentioned, is, he's one of the main protagonists in the narrative of the book of Isaiah. And there are some who believe it was one of Isaiah's sons as the immediate fulfillment. And now, you know, there's some textual evidence that would seem to point to this because 7.14, now we go to the next chapter in Isaiah. And so Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 18, it says that he and his children were signs to Israel. And I see this argument in JewsForJudaism.org. I'll put a link to this article in the show notes. So let me first read Isaiah 8.18 to give that little wrench in the gears. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord Yahweh has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord Yahweh of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And so, just before, I remember Ahaz, King Ahaz, was rejecting the signs that God was giving him and Isaiah God said that he would give a sign anyway, and one sign mentioned is 714, that the woman would conceive and bear a son and would call his name Emmanuel. So now who is this woman? Is this woman Isaiah's wife? Because if we read in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 1, just a little earlier, it says, Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. 
And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived, and bare a son. That sounds familiar. Then said the Lord Yahweh to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So it mentions the child shall have knowledge to cry. It says that Isaiah went to the prophetess, she conceived and bare a son. It gives a name and it says before the child shall have knowledge to cry. That sounds familiar. If we look at Isaiah 7, 15, which is right after 14, our Christmas verse about the virgin conceiving a bearing a bearing a son, calling his name Emmanuel, and then verse 15, butter or curds and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the good and choose the evil. Now verse 16, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. And so this seems to be textual evidence that the next chapter, Isaiah's son is the one who fulfills this. But a wrench in that is that you must make this a different son from Isaiah 9.6 because it mentions a child being born, a son being given. A lot of Jewish tradition believes that both of those are messianic or that they both at least refer to the same child. And in Isaiah 9.6, the government shall be upon his shoulder. The, The names given to this person are kingly names. And Isaiah was a prophet. His son did not become the king. And verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order and to establishment. Okay, so we have a king here. And so it seems that there could be some challenges to this, even though it seems like it follows in the text that the son that is given is Isaiah's son. Yet, if there are differences between Isaiah's son and the son that is born of the virgin in Isaiah 7.14 is not the same one, then Isaiah 7.14 stands, and it's similar to Isaiah 9.6 talking about the king whose kingdom will be forever. So that's one theory that I believe doesn't hold up, and it seems to be a minority theory among some Jews, because other ones hold that Isaiah 7.14 is talking about Hezekiah. Now, there is another belief that we can't forget that it was simply a son of a woman at the time who has been lost to history. So, it's an unknown woman who bore an unknown son, and we don't know anything about this person. Now, this position would be convenient in that it avoids testing the record of anyone. You you know, you can prove your position by not having it open to scrutiny by any records of anyone to compare to see if the prophecy describes the person. So, if it's someone you don't know, then you don't have to prove anything. But it would be strange that someone so incredibly lofty and called God with us would be someone who is completely lost to history and has no discernible effect on anything. That would be the worst kind of failed prophecy and would totally moot the verse of any meaning whatsoever. We would just do well to skip that verse. There's no significance to it. Now, interestingly, there's another verse I'd like to bring up. I know our focus is on Isaiah 9-6, so we need to get back to that as we go through the phrases. But Jeremiah 31-22 says, How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? Referring to Israel. 
For the Lord Yahweh hath created a new thing in the earth, a woman shall compass a man. Yes, this is another one of those texts that could technically have different interpretations. A lot of early church fathers have taken this as another prophecy of the virgin birth, and of course, non-Christian Jews would disagree with that. Could this just mean that for the first time a woman leader will have to take the charge and lead? Well, that's certainly not new because we have Deborah as an example. Is it just about a king born of normal means? That wouldn't be a new thing to be described in this manner. It says that Yahweh has created a new thing in the earth or in the land. A new thing. A woman shall compass a man is a new thing according to this verse. So this could be another evidence that Isaiah 7.14, when referring to a woman, a young woman conceiving a child and calling him God with us, that that lines up with this new thing of Jeremiah 31.22. And the new thing is that a woman shall compass a man. And if by Jewish tradition and generation, the son is known according to the father. And yet here we have the woman encompassing a man. And that's a new thing. That could be a virginal thing. So now that we've exhausted Isaiah 7.14 a little bit in the virgin birth and that it should be talking about Messiah, not just Isaiah's son or Hezekiah, let's go back to Isaiah 9.6 and continue the phrases we talked about, unto us a child is born and unto us for our benefit a special son is given. And so now the next phrase, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now, to the Jews, a government was a burden to bear. And so this task would be on the ever-able Messiah figure. He would perform this task and perform it perfectly. He would shoulder the burden of government. He would take this burden on his shoulder and turn it into a blessing for the nation. And now, a lot of Christians, we like to look at Christmas, we like to look at the babe born in the major and just think of all that's so sweet and cute, the silent night, the angels singing, and then he would grow up as a kid and become a man and then have a ministry of healing people and then he would die for our sins. But yet, this verse clearly refers to the government being upon his shoulders. So, as Christians, we have to remember the full picture. We can't neglect the role of Jesus in Revelation and the epistles as it talks about him being the judge of the living and the dead, the one who will return and destroy his enemies. We must remember the ultimate purpose of the special son being born and given to Israel here is not just that he come to be a babe in a manger. He didn't just come somehow to see what it was like to walk on the earth as a human. He didn't just come to heal the sick. He didn't just come to raise the dead in this life. He didn't just come to perform miracles. They, they attest to the divinity that he possessed. He didn't even just come to be the perfect sacrifice, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He came to be the promised king who will reign forever. He came to establish a victory over his enemies. He came to rule with a rod of iron. And he came so that he may be the judge of the living and the dead at the last day. You know how often we like 
those pictures of Jesus as the gentle shepherd holding the lamb in his arms, and as if he is nothing but just a sweet option. Well, the scriptures present Jesus as more than just an option. 1 Peter 2, 7, Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, he is unique. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same has become the head of the corner. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So Jesus, when he returns, he comes in flaming fire to take vengeance. Revelation 19, verse 13 says, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And so the government will be upon his shoulders, the tender lamb who was slain and became our atonement, also requires our worship. He will be the king. And now let's move on to the next phrase of Isaiah 9, 6. And his name shall be called. Now, when we think of names in Hebrew, it is not the same as we think of names of people in English in the United States. For example, I have a first name and a last name. The names mean something, but often in 21st century United States, we don't think about the meanings of names when we refer to people by name. We think of the meanings of names when we give names to our babies, but after that, it's just a reference. Today, names in society are almost merely a way to distinguish individuals from one another. And so when the name of this son is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, this is not a first and last name sandwiching two or three middle names. (laughs) If that were the case, we don't see anyone calling Jesus by this name in the gospel accounts. You know, no one says, "Uh, can I call you Wonderful or Wondy for short? It's it's exhausting to say that whole name. No, that's that's not what this is this means here in Hebrew. The names in Hebrew are quality descriptors. This doesn't mean that the person necessarily who's named matches the character of his or her birth name as we see other children who are not prophetic. Some children received names that described the situation that surrounded their birth, and others were prophetic guesses by their parents. And others were praises to God. For instance, my name is Daniel. It means God is judge. But now remember that the parallel passage we discussed earlier is Isaiah 7.14. The name of the son that was given as a sign is Emmanuel or God with us. Of course, anyone who denies the deity of Jesus Christ, whether they're Arians or Socinians or Muslims or Jews or atheists, could claim that the name Emmanuel means that the gift of the child demonstrates that God is with us by granting a deliverer, not that the deliverer himself is literally God living incarnate among Israel. 
But it's strange that we have a name given in Isaiah 7.14, and then a four-part name given in Isaiah 9.6. You'd think that these are the same person, and they seem to reference deity for the special son who's given. It's strange that we have two verses in Isaiah here talking about a special child given to Israel and granted a lofty name. In both verses, people have to go to lengths to explain how the name does not mean that this child himself is divine. In Isaiah 7.14, he's called Emmanuel, or God with us. Later, in Isaiah 9.6, the child is called El Gibor, Mighty God. Wouldn't it make more sense to accept that such lofty names for the special son given to us and as a sign from a virgin woman and called God in some way by name twice could actually then be God? Also notice that what Yahweh God says he will do in Isaiah is also what the Messiah, the son of David, will do. So let's look at Isaiah 40, verses 10 through 11. Behold, the Lord God, Yahweh, will come with strong arm, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are young. And yet the king on David's throne, who's referred to as David himself, will be the shepherd who will feed the flock. If we look at Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 24, it says, God says, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. And I, the Lord, have spoken it. And so, in Isaiah 40, verses 10 through 11, it says that Yahweh God himself will be the shepherd who will feed the sheep. And yet, it says in Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 24, that Yahweh will set up a shepherd, calling him David, and that David will be the shepherd over them, and he will feed them, and he will be their shepherd. So, couldn't we then argue that a child, given the name of God twice in Isaiah, could then, in fact, be God incarnate? If he does what God does, and he's given the name of God, why can't he be God? So now, let's look into this name that's given in Isaiah 9.6. We're looking at Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, in the Hebrew, this is Pele Yoez El Gibor Abiyadzar Shalom. Now, let's take that apart. If that seems kind of overwhelming, we'll take each of those pieces apart, those four names, and look at them. So, the first one, Wonderful Counselor, that's Pele Yoez in the Hebrew. Now, I think it's important to point out that if we're trying to determine if this four-part name given to the Son is just a reference to the God who gave the sign of the Son, or that the child's name just references the God who gave him, or if the names are aptly expressed as the character, as the nature of this child. 
Because if we can find these names as descriptions of God himself, and yet the child shall be called these names, then that seems to be some more evidence that we should regard this child as the incarnate Son of God himself, as Jesus Christ. So, Wonderful Counselor, Pele Yoez, the child shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, let's look in the same book, in Isaiah, chapter 25 and verse 1. It says, O Lord, Yahweh, thou art my God, I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And both the words wonderful and counsels there go back to Pele Yoez. Also, let's look at Isaiah 28, verse 29. This also cometh forth from the Lord Yahweh of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Again, wonderful and counsel are both those same words that are given to that child. And it says his name shall be called. It's the name, the descriptors of this child. So first we have of this four-part name, Wonderful Counselor, or Pele Yoez. So now let's go to the second one, Mighty God. And oh, this is going to stir the pot. Mighty God is El Gibor here, part of the, the second part of the name that is given to the special child. Those who deny that this makes the child God want to say that this name could also mean a mighty warrior or mighty judge. And, of course, the most common way that this is argued is by bringing up Ezekiel 32 and verse 21. It says, The strong among the mighty, or Ele Giborim, shall speak to him out of the midst of hell, or Sheol, with them that help him. They are gone down, they lie uncircumcised, slain by the sword. So the argument is that, well, if El Gibor in Isaiah 9-6 means mighty God, then we also have other mighty gods mentioned in Ezekiel 32-21. So if you don't understand these Ele Giborim, these mighty gods in Ezekiel 32.21 to mean true gods, well then, there's no reason to take El Gabor in Isaiah 9.6 to mean that the Son is a true God. It just means he's a mighty warrior, just like these. Now note that in context, in Ezekiel 32.21, talking about the strong among the mighty, or the Ele Giborim, the mighty gods, This is a reference to heathen warrior kings who were killed by the power of the one true God. They were examples of casualties. Like the king of Tyre, they thought they were gods. But the true God showed that they were mere men and brought them to the pit of death. This is a similar recurring theme. So let's see some of the earlier context to prove this point. So we just looked at Ezekiel 32.21, where a plural form of El Gibor is referencing dead heathen king warriors. So we move back four chapters. We look at Ezekiel 28, verse 2, and let's read to see how we should treat these mighty gods. Ezekiel 28, verse 2 says, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Yahweh, 
Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. This is important to the context of why these people were called mighty gods. And now skip down to verses 7 through 9 of Ezekiel 28. Behold, therefore I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. So, this is the context as we go to Ezekiel 32.21. So, you could basically put this in quotes. Oh, yeah, the mighty gods in mockery shall speak to him out of the midst of Sheol. This is talking about the ones who thought they were gods and they were proven to be men. They were slain and they're dead. And so now in Ezekiel 32, 21, these slain so-called mighty gods will speak to him out of the midst of Sheol, the realm of the dead. And so this is no proof that we, how we are to understand a name given to someone who's righteous in Isaiah 9.6, who's called El Gibor. We don't look at the negative reference of a plural form of El Gibor, who are people who thought they were gods, but were explicitly told by God, you are a man and not God. That doesn't prove how we should interpret mighty God, El Gibor, in Isaiah 9.6. So now let's see if we can find some context for Isaiah 9-6 that can help us to understand the phrase mighty God, the name El Gibor. What is the real context of this? Let's go from Isaiah 9-6, one chapter later in the same book. Remember, we were looking at Ezekiel, but now let's look at the same book. Perhaps a better context to understand El Gibor is in the same book, and only one chapter later. So in Isaiah 10, verses 20 through 21, we read these striking words in the same context of prophecy about how this child would deliver people. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God, El Gibor. So who is this El Gibor by name? It says in verse 20 that the remnant of Israel shall stay upon Yahweh. It's the tetragrammaton right there. The Holy One of Israel. They will stay upon him and they will return unto El Gibor, the mighty God. And so if the name of the child in the previous chapter is El Gibor, and yet we're told that El Gibor is Yahweh, the almighty true God, then perhaps that would explain to us the context of what El Gabor here means. That the name given to the child who is born, who will bear the government on his shoulders, he will be wonderful counselor, and he will be the mighty God. 
Let's look at another example, this one from Jeremiah 32, verse 18. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, El Gabor, the Lord Yahweh of hosts, is his name. And yet this name is given to the Son. This is the way we should understand El Gibor, not the plural El Giborim referenced in Ezekiel referring to kings who thought they were gods, but were proven not to be. This was mockery. That is no context to explain El Gibor in Isaiah 9.6. Here's another example from Jeremiah that shows how the king, the human king, the son of David, can also be called God. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord Yahweh, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. That sounds like Isaiah 9, 6. The government will be upon his shoulders. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness, Yahweh Zedek. So the name of this king is the righteous Yahweh, just like he's the mighty God El Gibor in Isaiah 9, 6. That should be more evidence the son who's born and given and bears the government, who's the king who will rule forever, is the incarnate God himself. We also have Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve, Yiplehun him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now in Isaiah 9, 6, we have a reference to the son who will reign, his kingdom will be forever. So this should be referring to the same person. This is another messianic reference. And we have verse 27 down below in Daniel 7. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now I want to look at that word serve there in both of those verses. In Daniel 7.14 and Daniel 7.27, the word serve, yiplehun, is a very unique word in the Hebrew language. Now, yiplehun, from pelak, the word pelak in the Hebrew Old Testament as Hebrew or Aramaic in the case of most of the book of Daniel, every single time when it is used refers to worshiping deity. You can look this up. Yet it's used in Daniel 7, verses 14 and 27 to refer to the Son of Man, who is obviously the Messiah, who will also reign forever, as Isaiah chapter 9 will describe the Son who's given. So, Isaiah 9, 6 is the same person as Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, who is given the kingdom over the entire earth, and all peoples will serve Yiplehun, or Pelak him. They will serve him in a way that is only directed toward deity. Now, let's move on. We just looked at Wonderful Counselor, 
and mighty God, and we had a lot to say about that. But let's look at everlasting Father, Abiyad in the Hebrew. And as I said before, we're going to see uses or references to these names that are given to the Son in the book of Yahweh in some form. So the Son is called Abiyad, everlasting Father or Father of Eternity. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus saith the High and Lofty One that inhabiteth eternity, or odd, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, so Isaiah 57.15, the same book, refers to God Almighty inhabiting eternity, and yet the Son is called Father of Eternity, the Abiyad. In Isaiah 63, verse 16, it says, Doubtless thou art our Father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord Yahweh, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. So God is both the Abi and he inhabits eternity, the Ad, and yet the name given to the Son is Abiyad, Father of eternity. This, again, is another name that speaks to the deity of this Son. And now let's go on to the final name, Prince of Peace, or Sar Shalom in the Hebrew. Now, there is no use of the word sar in Isaiah here, but we can get the general idea here. You don't have to have the same specific office mentioned if it's a similar office. So, Isaiah 2.4 says, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So, God is said to judge among the nations, and his judgment will cause peace. So, the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, as a name given to the Son, seems also to apply to the God who judges and brings peace. We also have Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace, or Shalom and create evil. I, the Lord Yahweh, do all these things. So Yahweh God is the source of peace. He is the one who creates shalom or peace. But yet the name given to the Son, Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, shouldn't that speak also to his deity that he all likewise can create peace? And so we have unwrapped Isaiah 9-6. We've done a deep dive, really without looking at the New Testament, to see how it is messianic and how it references someone who's more than just a human, more than just a good king, but someone who is also God. As much as he's a gift from God, he's the divine son incarnate. So let's also wrap up our test of King Hezekiah. Could this person in Isaiah 9-6 be King Hezekiah? Well, let's look at the following verse, Isaiah 9-7. It says, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. But yet, what do we know about King Hezekiah? As Hezekiah was indeed one of the greatest kings, one of the greatest pre-exilic kings, It was only in the divided kingdom of Judah. He didn't unite the two kingdoms during his reign. 
Also, Hezekiah, if you remember correctly, he became ill and he turned in his bed to the wall and he was told by the prophet he was going to die. And remember, he turned in his head to the wall and prayed to God for healing and God granted him 15 more years. Yet during those 15 years, Hezekiah became proud and showed some Babylonian envoys his riches. And of course, that meant God would have to judge. Isaiah, the prophet, then had to tell King Hezekiah this sobering prophecy. Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 7. So remember, this is in Isaiah, the same book of 9-6, that said in 9-7, Of the increase of the son's government and peace there shall be no end. Yet we see in Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 7, Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. Behold, the days come, that all that is in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So, in other words, Hezekiah's sons will not themselves bear sons, and everything will be taken away, taken captive into Babylon. Does that really sound like, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end? And this is in the same book. So I think that we can put to rest this idea that King Hezekiah is this special child who's born and given, and that he gets these lofty names that would describe one who is divine, and that he will bear the government on his shoulders, and that of the increase of this government there shall be no end, and of peace there shall be no end. Where's the increase of the government when it's all taken away and carried to Babylon? Where's the increase of peace in captivity and violence? Yes, one could say that the increase of his government continued on and that Messiah will fulfill that. But the increase of the Messiah's government will be no end. So even many Jews recognize that Isaiah 9.6 references a Messiah. And Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 7.14 seem to go well together. They're not far apart in the book of Isaiah. It doesn't seem like they would reference different people when they're both children given. The first mentioned as a sign born of a young woman or virgin and given the name Emmanuel. And then Isaiah 9.6 mentions the child who's born and given both unto us, and that he will have a name, just like Isaiah 7.14 mentions the name Emmanuel. 9.6 mentions a four-part name. Peleyoes el gibor abiatsar shalom. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So why shouldn't these be talking about the same person? And if they are, Isaiah's son fails. King Hezekiah fails. But the one who fulfilled that is the one who's born of a virgin, born of the Virgin Mary in the gospel accounts, and he's Jesus. And when he returns, having fulfilled Isaiah 53, he will then return to be the king who will bear the government, and of his kingdom there shall be no end, and he's the prince of peace. And so I hope this 
little study of Isaiah 9-6 and some other verses in Isaiah 7-14 have done a little more unwrapping of the gift of this Christmas promise. I know it seemed like we're drinking from a fire hose, but I hope that this really makes you think deeply about the prophecies of Jesus Christ and who he is. And so from Truth Spresso, I wish you all a Merry Christmas. Thank you for waking up with Truth Spresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Spresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Spresso. 